Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Roslyn. I am Rosalind. I'm a compulsive reader and recovering bulimic. Hi, Hi everybody. Oh, I feel a little nervous. Will you all join me in the serenity prayer? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Oh, um, is not here tonight, but I am so honored that she asked me to leave. I cannot believe that I'm standing up here, and I cannot believe that it's been um, 12 years since I've been in this um, a Reader's Anonymous. I will go back and talk about what it used to be like. You know, as a little girl, I don't have a memory of what um, a lot of people share in Overeaters Anonymous about having a relationship with food. I was one of those little kids that wanted to leave the dinner table. You know, I was fidgety and wanted to go, out and go outside and play. I didn't have a connection with food. I just didn't care. But I was living in a situation um, in a very dysfunctional, very loving, but very, very dysfunctional family. And my parents are both, my mother's hard of hearing, my father is deaf. And they both came from South America in the early 1970s. And I'm their only child, you know, Latin family, only kids. <laughs> and um, I became their eyes and ears, of course. You know, there wasn't really interpreters back then. And, um, you know, they did the best they could with what they had. And I became an adult, little adult right away. And I got a lot of praise for that and a lot of recognition. But, you know, the expectation of me performing and pleasing others and pleasing my parents and doing things for other people all the time, it just, the bar got raised too high. And it got to the point where things were so crazy. And, and let me also say, not it wasn't just because people say, oh, okay, you know, your parents were deaf, so of course you have an eating disorder. And that's not the case. I mean, I know a lot of people who are children of deaf adults who, you know, didn't turn to an addiction. It's not so much that. They were, my mother is an unrecovered Al-Anon, and they came from a long line of alcoholics. So they just passed on patterns that, you know, were done to them. And they, they truly, you know, today I know they did the best they could. But it was absolute insanity in my home. I mean, there was the pink elephant in the room, a big one, and nobody noticed it. And I did. And, you know, when you're a little kid, little kids are so truthful. They see what they see, but if you're told that it's not there, then you, have, you believe your caregivers. You believe your parents. And... So there was a lot of stuffing, there was a lot of secrets, and there was a lot of denial of what was going on in my home. And God bless me, you know, and, and I know I understand and I get um, why I use the food. I had to. I actually thank God that the food was there. And that's how I medicated my reality, you know. I didn't have the tools. I didn't have anybody. I didn't have any role models to have an outlet. You know, the food was so comforting. It was my friend. And the thing is, is that I looked, you know, very skinny, and I had an extremely high metabolism, and it was um, thought as thought of as uh, a good thing when I ate a lot of food. I was a volume eater, and I would get a lot of praise from my parents and my culture. That's just they all applaud, and they're like, oh, you're so good. You're eating, you know, good for you. And, 
And it was something that my mom gave me when um, I was sick, when I was sad. She always would give me food. But it didn't show on the outside, you know. So I didn't know that I had a problem with it. I did know that I felt at an early age separate from you, alone, um, very much in fear, and a great little performer. I was, you know, really good at fooling you that I was okay. And it was all about figuring out how you wanted me to be and... You know, so that I would get your approval and your love and your acceptance in order for me to be okay inside. And, you know, in the meanwhile, just devaluing who I was and not, you know, I, I had no sense of who I was. So the food just um, took that away and it took a lot of the pain that was going on in my home. Um, as I got older, I, you know, you hit puberty and you're like, oh, you know. We're starting to be more self-conscious, you know, the boys are looking, and I started really noticing my body. And I started slowly, like to other people it seemed like a hobby, you know, like I was really um, nutritionally educated and uh, started running, I started exercising, and I started controlling my food. And I got really high from it, you know. It felt really good because I was, you know, I had power over something. I mean, it was an illusion, of course, but at the time I was like, this is like, this is it, you know. And if I could, and then I would get to a certain weight and I would like, that's where my self-esteem would come from. That's how I looked. And it just became this full-blown obsession. And what was once a week of binging and purging went to, um, in a short amount of time, in five years, went to 20 times a day. And, like I said, at first it, it did get me high, and it did work. It did take the pain away temporarily. And then, just like the disease, it just progresses, and it gets worse over time. And, uh, and I found myself trying to control it. I found myself trying to manage it in so many different ways. And then watching myself do things like, um, I remember my mom brought home some food, and I was like, okay, I'm not going to eat it. I'm not going to eat it. I'm just... I'm going to eat such and such tonight. And then she left the room, and I went and ate some, and then I saw that I couldn't stop, so I poured bleach all over it, only to go back and then eat around the bleach. You know, like, that's such the insanity of this disease. Like, I could not stop, and I had so much shame about being compulsive. Well, I didn't know I was compulsive either, but I, I had so much shame that I couldn't stop throwing up, and I couldn't stop eating, you know. And this 18-year-old girl was supposed to be at parties and going out and having fun, and I was going through drive throughs and, you know, eating in my car, throwing up in dumpsters or bathrooms that I knew nobody would go to, um... You know, this was like a full-time obsession, and I got to the point where, you know, I would be at parties, and um, like I said, I'm such a good actress, you know, people thought, thought oh, you know, you're, you have so many friends, you can be so happy, you're going to go in school, and I wore, um, you know, long sleeve sweaters like this, and if you lifted up my sleeve, you would see there was like a lot of cuts, you know, but nobody knew, you know, I just did it um, in secret. And I would be so ashamed if you ever found out. So, um, where was I? I remember, like, being at parties and looking around the room and, you know, acting, but inside just feeling so alone. All I wanted to do was go home and eat, eat and throw up. And that was, um, you know, the only thing I knew that made me feel okay. 
you know, was eating. But then it gets to that point where it stops working, and then you're like, now what? You know, like, it's not working anymore. It's not feeling the pain. And I was also abusing relationships and alcohol and cigarettes and whatever else I could get my hands on. And for me, like, I'm looking back now, I know why my life just spiraled down so quickly. Like, I couldn't have been one of those people that held a job and had a degree and, you know, have the boyfriend or the friends and everything on the outside look okay. I, I don't think I would have hit the bottom that I did. I lost everything. I lost my job, my car, I dropped out of school, I got fired from work, and I basically locked myself in a room for about a year with literally, like, no <laughs> exaggeration, with the blind clothes, TV on, eating and throwing up, eating and throwing up, because that's all I knew how to do. And... You know, suicide never seemed like an option for me because I always thought that suicide was for people that, um, you know, are really fucked up and really in a lot of pain. Like, it was just so separate for me. And for the first time in my life, I actually thought about it because I couldn't stop doing it. I couldn't stop eating and throwing up. And I tried, and I thought I had such good willpower. And like I said, there was so much shame. Like, my parents, oh, my God. You know, God bless them. They didn't know. They're just these little people from Colombia. And they're like, what happened? We don't understand how to help you. And, you know, my mom would lock the cabinets and the refrigerator and all the covers in the house so that I wouldn't eat their food. And, you know, she'd watch me to see if I would go to the bathroom. And then I would, you know, end up doing it in my room and putting it in trash. I mean, it was just crazy. So I got to the point where suicide, you know, I started thinking about it. But I don't think I really wanted to die. I think I just wanted to learn how to live. Like, I wanted to be happy, you know. I didn't want to fake it anymore. Because I couldn't fake it. I was done, you know. I was just confined in my room, and I couldn't put on the act anymore. And I knew somebody who was in a 12-step program who um, went through AA regularly, and I didn't know about 12-step programs, and I would asked them, like, I just remember being on my knees and crying and saying, I really need help. I really need help, and I don't know what to do. And they said something to me, you know, today, I, I now know it's just amazing, but then I just was like, what are you talking about? They told me to go out and ask God for help. And I was like, okay, don't be all weird and, you know, religious and, you know, just come on. And they're like, I'm serious. Go outside, take a walk, and ask something out there, you know, for help. So I did it, you know, and I didn't believe in it. Because my relationship with God was just not good. I was raised Catholic. Um, I love the religion today, which is amazing. But I hated it growing up because of, you know, sort of what man did to it, what my parents did to it, whatever. And there was a lot of spiritual abuse in my home. I remember being a little girl looking out the window, and, and it would be lightning and thunder. And I'd look at my mom, and she'd go, God is so mad right now. You know? And that's my concept of God. Like, that's my childhood concept of God. And it, it's still taking me a long time to find that loving God. So I went outside and I asked for help, and, you know, I was like, well, whatever. And, of course, I continued to binge and purge and didn't give it much thought. Two weeks later, I wanted to go into a treatment program. I didn't, my insurance wouldn't cover it. So I got it somehow, you know, I got uh, the help of a therapist who I couldn't afford, and she said to me, why don't you try Overeaters Anonymous? My first thought was, I'm not an overeater. I don't want to go to a place called Overeaters Anonymous. You know, my ego was like, always had to be, you know, better than, less than, better than, less than. Mm. So I called anyway, and a really friendly person answered the phone. And, of course, I said, you know, I have a friend, my sister, whatever I said. And, you know, I'm sure they knew it was me. And, um, and I said, are there any meetings where people throw up? That's what I said. 
And I just thank God, like today I relate to every, every one of you. But when I first came in, it was really good for me to go to a meeting with a bulimic emphasis for me at the time. And my friend dropped me off. I walked in. It was dark. It was a candlelight meeting. It was Orange County. That's where I was raised. And um, I walked in, and I was like, grateful that it was dark. Kind of called my, and it was like, like kind of culty, you know, all these people in a circle with a candle. And, okay, and then they're saying all these things and doing the serenity prayer and whatever. And I sat in the back. And I just didn't know. And then this woman spoke. And, um, and oh, by the way, this meeting wasn't a bulimic emphasis meeting. I actually went to the wrong meeting. <laughs> um, but this woman spoke, and she didn't look anything like me. She was a lot older. And I didn't think, of course, she had anything in common. And she told her story. And I remember going, oh, my God, how can you tell all these people your secret? Like, aren't you ashamed? You know, how can you openly be so honest and say this in front of Because I thought I was going to carry it to my grave. You know, and the other part of me was like, I can't believe somebody is saying, you know, what I felt my whole life. And I thought I was just so alone. And I remember just, you know, having all these feelings come up, and, you know, and I left way before the, the end of the meeting because she had talked her story, and I, and I left, waited for my ride to come pick me up. And, of course, I went home and proceeded to binge and throw up like I never have before, you know, because I know that the feelings were coming up, and it's like, how do I know how to deal with any of those feelings? Mm-hmm. Eat. You know, that's what I do. I'm a compulsive overeater. And um, so I went home, and I came back to another meeting. In the second meeting, I had the courage to raise my hand, and I thought I was going to say all these things, and all that came out was just tears. And I just cried the whole time. I was really embarrassed, and everyone just said, keep coming back, and looked at me like, you know, how we look at each other in these rooms, just with that acceptance and that love, and it made me feel like um, I definitely didn't love myself when I got to this program. And you guys loved me until I could love myself, that is for sure. So I uh, started coming to meetings, and like I said, I didn't have a car, so people were picking me up, doing service, I was going to meetings, and, um, you know, going to fellowship after the meetings. I... My first year was absolutely nuts. I got abstinent from vomiting about a month and a half since, when, you know, after I joined Overeaters Anonymous. And I remember that day. I remember it really well. I threw up in the middle of the afternoon, and I called somebody, and I said, oh, I threw up in the middle of the afternoon. Da, 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 I've got to start over tomorrow. And they're like, well, why don't you start over right now? Because my disease is about extremes. If I fuck up today, I'm going to continue. You know, so I'll do it perfectly tomorrow. And she's like, start over your day to right now. So I did, and that was my last purge. And uh, and another thing that really helped me was that I had to make my abstinence wide enough so I didn't fall off of it. And I had to be told from these wonderful women that walked before me, um, you know what, Rosalind, you can eat and grow up all you want tomorrow. Just don't do it for today or the next hour. Because if you told me that I couldn't eat and throw up the next year or that was the goal, I would have been out. Because there's no way I would have been able to do it. So, but I was like, okay, I could do today, you know, and I hung on for dear life, and I went to meetings, and I cried, and all I talked about was my weight, and how, how full I felt, you know, because I realized how much of a compulsive overeater I was when I wasn't vomiting, and I go to meetings completely stuffed, and all I talk about is how full I felt and how much I wanted to throw up, and you guys would just nod your head and say, keep coming back, you know, nobody said, okay, we're really bored of this, you know, like, this is all you keep talking about, that's just where I was at. And, you know, miraculously working the steps, life got better, um, relationships started changing. You know, it wasn't an overnight. I mean, God, not even in the first five years. I was just crazy. You know, I was still crazy with food. I remember going to meetings and, like, I was at a home birth meeting and 
my third year or something and I'm doing legless in the middle of a meeting, you know, to like keep burning the calories and stuff. And it's just like, you know, it just, I wasn't like, you know, you do the 12 steps and then you're recovered. It wasn't like that at all. As a matter of fact, I found out like how much stuff was underneath, including other addictions and so on and so forth. So I kept coming back and um, I did, I was still smoking and I was still acting out in relationships. I was still making men, people, well, specifically men, my higher power. So I had these other things going over here on the side, but I was still coming to over to OA. And about five years into the program, and I want to talk about this because this is an important part of my, my story, I got to a place, looking back now, that, you know, I, I hit a, and they say like every five years, you know, you come to a different layer in your recovery. And I got to a lot of layers in therapy that were really painful to look at, and I stopped telling my secrets. And you know what they say, that we're as sick as our secrets. And I stopped telling my secrets, and I started to hide, and I started to just isolate and not tell you because, you know, whatever, this or that. I stopped going to meetings, and eventually, like over time, and the disease went right back to where it was when I first came here. Not so much in the food and the vomiting, but I, I relapsed emotionally and spiritually. Like, the light was out. You know, like I didn't have any light and it was gone. And um, so I hit a, another bottom with that, um, with my addiction to nicotine and to relationships. And that's just part of my story and that's just what I needed to go through. And I ended up um, going to some other programs. I got a scholarship, this amazing gift, to go to this extended care in Arizona where I did a lot of my work. And for three months, I packed my bags and quit my job and, and left, and um, amazing things happened there. I really think I found my relationship with God at a place called Pia's Place in Arizona. And I've been coming back ever since. And, um, you know, I when I got here, I, I remember this woman saying, um, you, if you, you know, put a gun to my head and ask me how I feel. Like, she said, I would... I would be dead because I couldn't tell you how I felt. And I remember hearing that and thinking, I had no idea who Rosalind was when I got here. None. None whatsoever. And it took a really long time, and I'm, of course, still working on it, to get a sense of who I am and to learn about my disease, to learn what works for me, to take care of me. Because I always thought it that, you know, it was the food or the this or the guy that had to fill that hole. You know, I, I still kind of do, but when I come here, I, I know different. And, you know, that's one of the biggest, biggest gifts I've gotten from, from OA is to learn how to take care of myself, not to beat myself up, um, because that's what I do so incredibly well. I heard somebody mention OA. They said, oh, it's, you know, Overeaters Anonymous. No, it's Overbeaters Anonymous, you know, mm-hmm. just kicking the crap out of myself. And so the affirmations and the tools of this program are really important, too, to be kind to myself and to do, you know, because it didn't come naturally, for sure. Like, I thought it was so cheesy when people said, I'm perfectly imperfect, and, and, and I just, I, it was so foreign to me. It was so hallmarky, you know? It's like, I just didn't relate to it. And I remember doing it in the mirror and realizing how much self-hate that I really had, you know? And, um, but I heard, if you act as if, eventually the feelings will follow. And they did. And, um, you know, and I do have a life beyond my wildest dreams. I, and I would hear that and go, oh, yeah, 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 whatever, you know. And I actually do today. And that's such a miracle because of this program and because of my other, you know, I'm also an Al-Anon and that's helped a great deal with my recovery with relationships. My abstinence is that I don't throw up no matter what. 
Um, but my food is very imperfect. And I probably, in the 12 years I've been coming here, my food has only been perfect for two weeks. I have called my sponsor saying, I can't believe I ate this, and I can't believe I ate an extra this, and oh my God, and I relapsed. And she said, Rosalind, it's not over, it's not Sustainers Anonymous, it's Overeaters Anonymous. You're a compulsive overeater. And I was at a retreat recently, a woman's retreat, and it was so profound. I've been in this program for 12 years, and this woman said, okay, raise your left hand if you're powerless over food. Well, of course. Raise your right hand if you're powerless over food. Raise your left hand if you're powerless. I mean, I'm sorry. Raise your left hand if you're powerless. Raise your right hand if you feel shame. And of course, everybody in the room raised their their right hands. And we kept doing it over and over. And finally waiting for her to say, well, you know, both. And she said, well, which one is it? Which one is it? Do you have shame or are you powerless? But there's no shame if, if, if I'm powerless. If there's shame, that means I can control it. You know? And so I love that freedom of just saying, oh my, you know, God can and I can't. I'm so powerless over this disease and what my head does, you know. But I have the tools today um, to use and to go to and to come to meetings and tell my truth. And that's my biggest part of my recovery is telling my truth. Mm-hmm. It's telling on myself and being accountable. My sponsor has 22 years in this program and her abstinence is just being accountable. Mm-hmm. That's it. And so my food is. You know, I, I'm not a restrictor. Uh, I can't restrict. I can't take anything off my list. That's just how it works for me. I try to list, like, in the first couple of years, there's no way this would have happened. I ate like a crazy person, you know, either restricting or overeating, restricting or overeating, and trying to control. But at this point in my recovery, especially after working the eighth and ninth step, I saw a lot of freedom, my food and my body obsession. And I try to listen to, am I hungry? You know, am I full? listening to my body and it's an amazing gift you know before it was always like okay I'll just have this much on the tape and that's how much I'm going to eat and it was just so outside of myself and I, I feel like now you know I'm a breastfeeding mom and I have to eat a little bit more and some days I have five meals and some days I have two depending on if I have exercise for that day and you know and I try to be really conscious of you know uh, that feeling that I want to eat but I'm not hungry so what's going on with me you know what's going on with me and usually if I do, and it's not always, but if I take a pen to paper, it's, I have a lot of fear going on. Lots of fear. You know, I wake up scared all the time. And this program calms me down. This program tells me different than my disease tells me. Because my disease, and I thought this was so dramatic when I got here, um, when, when my, one of the women I just look up to and I really want what she has said to me, you know, um, or to the group, she said, I have a disease that wants me dead. And I'm like, okay. I don't get that. I didn't get that at the time. And I really believe that, especially since I've experimented with it. Like, I left, and it was not pretty. That's part of my story, and I don't wish it on anybody, but it's, um, it absolutely, there is no other easier, softer way for me. And um, so my food is relatively clean today. Um, I live life between my meals. And by the way, I, 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 I love food. I love to eat. And it's not about, like, eating and gorging and, like, being totally unconscious, it's like, mmm, I love this meal, or, you know, I just enjoy my food, and um, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I thought I had to be like, oh, I, just, I don't care about food anymore. Um, I think I have a pretty healthy relationship with food. Today I'm married to an incredible man who, I've done a lot of work around relationships, and, you know, he's not my higher power today, he's just my husband, and he adds to my life. And he's an emotionally available man. Can I just tell you that five years ago, there's no way I would have been attracted to him. Even five years ago, I would have said to myself, he's too boring, you know? He's too, he's just too available. Or he's too nice. And the truth is, is I w- the truth is, is that 
I wouldn't have thought that I was worthy of his kindness or his love. And uh, I really like people with their backs turned to me, you know, like if 100 people in the room, or, you know, there's 100 people and there's 99 people that like me, the one person that doesn't, I want to go after that person, you know, and get them to notice me. So very much, um, uh, that was very much part of my relationships. And, you know, I have a man today who just supports my spiritual growth. He does. He absolutely supports my spiritual growth. And it's, I'm an intensity addict. Love drama. Love, love it. Love it. Just, you know. And to the general public, like, he's not a boring person. But to my addict, he is. You know. So, so a lot of time I have to, I know, not have to, but I'm learning to accept that it feels somewhat boring. You know, I come from a pain-addicted family where there's a lot of chaos and violence and, you know, that's just how I grew up. And so I think that's how the relationship should be. So um, one day at a time, you know, it's getting easier and easier. And, and like I said, I work another program for that. I have an 18-month-old daughter. She's amazing. Her name is Luna. And um, I never thought I'd be mom in this program because it just... I was so afraid of repeating the pattern. I was so afraid of not being able to love that that child. I was so afraid of, you know, not being able to stop throwing up. And I know that I would have had my head in the toilet with her, like, around. And today, like, I get to be, you know, the best mom I can be with her. And um, even a little bit of uh, being able to be present with her just gives me, like, so much joy that I can be present with her, you know, and not be thinking about this or that or my food or my body and be with my daughter. And I um, I remember calling my sponsor when I had her, and I was so terrified. I was like, I made a mistake. I don't know why I had a baby. This is too hard. I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm going to make all the mistakes. And this is that. I just went on and on and on. And my sponsor said, you probably will. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you were supposed to say, because I'm in a culture program, that I'm going to do it perfectly or something, you know, whatever. And she said, you probably will make all those mistakes, Rosalind, but the difference is, is that you will get to work a program around it, and you will get to be human and show her, you know, um, what it's like to take care of yourself and what it's like to be human and admit, admit mistakes, because I love being, I think, I don't love, I think I need to be perfect. You know, and that's such a part of my disease is perfectionism, especially with my food. It can really, you know, beat myself up and, and parenting and all of it. So, yeah, so I have a, a little girl, and I just, like, sometimes I want to go up to God's, like, book, you know, that he had planned out for me, and I just want to go over there and say, like, you've been doing a really good job. Like, you really know what you're doing, you know. I didn't think you would, but you really do know what you're doing. But looking back on my life, I'm like, I've never been dropped, and everything has turned out the way it was supposed to. Everything. You know, as much as I fought it and didn't think so, and then when I trust, and it's like, it's unbelievable how each time God always has my best interest at heart. You know, in my relationships with my parents, I have an incredible relationship with my mom, and she hasn't changed, you know. She drives me crazy sometimes, super controlling, and she always tells me what to do with Luna. But, um, you know, I, I, I just, the more compassionate I am, with myself, like, the less I judge you and the less I judge me, the less, you know, it's like I'm able to see her through love-filled eyes sometimes, and that's such a gift. Like, I get, I look at my mom, and I'm like, she doesn't have the tools. She's, un, you know, she's not recovered, and God bless her. You know, she's, she's really doing the best she can, and of course she's controlling. Of course she's this way, and I get to today say to her, ouch, 
tell her, you know, that it's not okay or set boundaries with her and not be her, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm so much, I used to be so much of my mom's husband and my dad's wife. And I have learned to separate myself from her. It's felt like a really big breakup in the last couple of years. But I don't do it with, like, you know, I'm like, like the wall. I just try to do it with detachment. And, um, and, and, you know, and she's just my mother. She's not, like, my, my, we were just very emotional. We're not, like, stuck together like glue anymore. And I'm not enabling her today, you know, a result of the tech program. So, you know, it's just an amazing ride in this recovery. You know, based on my upbringing, I know that I'm a survivor. But, God, you know, I think based on my upbringing, like, I should have been out there. I should have been dead, you know, doing heroin. I don't, you know, just, like, I'm so grateful that I ended up in these rooms. It's like just to live life in a totally um, way of gratitude, you know. I mean, how much, like I go out and it's like because I know where I come from and when I'm playing at the park with my daughter, I'm like, this is so cool, you know. Or when I'm sponsoring another girl and she's telling me her secrets that she never thought she would tell somebody, and just that that connection and that that truth that's that's taking place and the watch of changes in the girls that I sponsor is just amazing. It's just so amazing and. Um, I don't know what else more to say, so I'm going to stop, and um, thanks for listening. So, we're going to do the questions. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Does anybody have any questions? Okay, yeah, I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> um, she wanted me to talk about how I learned to love myself and what exactly does that mean for me. Is that right? Okay. Learning to love myself. One of the uh, women that I look up so, look up to so much um, from my Orange County meeting always says, you know, I'm the mom now and I'm the only one that can take care of little Rosalind. You know, I didn't have great parenting and I didn't have um, good role models. And when I got here, taking care of myself is talking lovingly to myself even when I don't feel like it. Um, saying affirmations to myself, you know, being my own sort of cheerleader and not beating myself up, going to the gym, um, going to yoga. When I had my baby, I was told I couldn't work out for six weeks. And, you know, it's like, do you know who you're talking to? Like, what? I can't work out for six weeks? That's crazy. No, of course I'm going to work out. You know, and I got home, and, I, you know, it's like your body looks... I'm so in love with my body when I'm pregnant, by the way. And I looked, you know, different. And, um, and it was, God, that was so hard for me to, you know, act as if and look at myself and tell myself that I was more than my body and more than the numbers on the scale, you know. And, and... In my disease, I would have been like, you know, I'm right. The next day, I don't care how much pain I'm in. And today, it's about like listening to myself and going, you know what? I went because I went for a walk, and I'm like, this doesn't really feel that good. It doesn't feel good. So I'm gonna stop. And that's honoring myself, and that's taking care of myself. You know, I really get into finding out what I don't want instead of what I want because I want everything, but what I don't want, and it helps me, you know, really get in touch with my feelers. You know, this feels uncomfortable, this isn't, this is too much, this is whatever, and, and that's the way I, I honor myself or take care of myself today. And sometimes it's a total act as if until it, until it, um, until it starts feeling genuine. So. 
so much for your coverage there. Um, can you discuss over your time program your um, evolution of 67 and letting go of your Okay. <laughs> yes, um, the question was, can I talk about um, letting go of uh, my defects of character and, and how I work 6 and 7? Is that right? I still have all my defects of character. They're all there. Um, some less than others. I, I I thought that when I got to six and seven that you were supposed to do it like like I thought you were supposed to do it with a suit like you know act like you're really happy when you're really angry <laughs> and you know do it like with the white knuckling and um, and I've learned with the six and seven that I uh, I write out what's going on you know like I have so many character defects one of them was rage for a long time um, that's been taken you know, on God's time and not on my time. And I can see why, because if it was on my time, it would have been too soon. I wouldn't have got the lessons that I was supposed to get. It was just taken on God's time, and that's what I have to learn, is that God takes care of it, not me. All I get to do is, like, is write about it, tell my truth to you guys, and then turn it over, and not expect that it's supposed to be lifted, and not beat myself up when I have a character defect that pops up a lot, you know? Like, okay, you know, I'm human, of course. You know, I remember calling my sponsor and I said, oh my God, I totally lied to this person and I did this and I, and I just, character fascinated them and I did this and she's like, well, why don't you call me back when you can walk on water? You know, and it's so true. It's like, I think I'm, because I read Deepak Chopra, I'm supposed to like be all enlightened, you know, and it's not about that. It's like, it's about, you know, just accepting and, and, and like I said, and that helps with other people. You know, when I can accept that I'm greedy and, Manipulative, and I, I heard a woman share um, the same woman, and she said, "I am so loving and so kind and generous and articulate and warm and loving, and I'm also vindictive and mean and controlling, and you know, I'm all those things. And so, I have to know that I'm just not all my flaws. You know, they're just part of being human, and God will release them when um, He sees fit." Uh, the question was my husband supports my spiritual growth I've um, first time I've been in a relationship where it is not about what am I going to get from you how are you going to fix me what are you going to do for me what am I going to do for you how are you going to make fill that hole in me how are you going to complete me and today my relationship with my husband is that he just adds to my life and what I mean by spiritual growth is that he wants to see me be the best Rosalind that I can be. So he participates in my recovery by, for instance, amazing man, taking care of our daughter, taking her today to work with him so that I can come here. You know, always encouraging me to go to meetings. And, of course, he has his own motives because he's like, you're so much nicer when you go to meetings. You're so much when you go to meetings. He's always like, no, go, go. Go to meetings. But, um, you know, I mean, he's, you know, he's got his stuff and he's taking care of him and it's not me filling him up and it's not this, you know, this symbiotic relationship where we're just glued together all the time. So that's what I mean by encouraging each other. And um, he's got his own path with God, you know, and he knows that I have mine. So, does that answer your question?